You're listening to WIUX LP Bloomington. I'm Taylor Haggerty, and this is American Student Radio. I'll be your host for this week's very special end-of-the-semester best-of extravaganza with the help of my fellow producers. We've chosen our favorite pieces from the 11 amazing episodes we've produced this semester, and now we're going to listen to them all over again. There's a lot to get through, so let's get started. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, again, live... What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. So this is a best of episode, and since we're looking back on our semester, I thought we should start with the oldest pieces and work our way up through to where we are now. The first piece made for our show on fear was a historical work on mass hysteria from producers Eli Cantrell and Hayden Sims. When we played it the first time, everyone in studio was so impressed with the creative editing and production that went into it that we all kind of like took a step back and just talked about it for a little bit. Um, But like with all that being said, maybe it's just best to play the piece so you can hear it for yourself. Twist and turn and hands. Hey Eli, uh, what's with the dancing? Oh, I'm just uh, trying to tap into the spirit of Frau Trophia. Who's Frau Trophia? Oh, uh, Frau Trophia, the first victim of the dancing plague of 1518. A dancing plague? Yeah, uh, here, how about this? Close your eyes. Okay. Are they closed? Yep. Okay, picture this. The year is 1518. You're in the city of Strasbourg in northern France, and it's in the middle of July. Ooh, hot! You're walking down through the town center, and you notice a woman dancing the night away. Okay, I'm liking this picture so far. Each day you pass by, more and more dancers have joined her, and by the end of the week... More than 400 people are dancing in the streets of Strasbourg. Wait, 400 people in the streets of Strasbourg? Well, there had to have been something going on, a festival or something. Well, that's the thing. According to the historical records at the time, these people didn't want to dance. They somehow felt compelled to dance. They danced nonstop for days on end, and dozens of them ended up dying from heart attacks and exhaustion. One account says that during one period, this so-called plague killed 15 people per day. 15 people per day just from dancing. And rather interestingly, this event was not isolated just in Strasbourg. In the next couple of centuries after this, there were several more accounts of dancing mania throughout Europe. Well, hang on now. Now, people don't just start randomly dancing. There had to be some sort of cause to this. Um, The physicians at the time thought it was caused by some sort of blood disease, and their prescription for a cure was to dance it out. They built stages and hired musicians to encourage more of these dancers. Wait, wait, wait. So let me, let me get this straight. So dozens of people are dying from this dancing plague, 
and their solution was to encourage more dancing. Yeah, I know. It doesn't really make that much sense. Uh, eventually, modern researchers theorized that this could have been caused by um, this hallucinogenic fungus called ergot that infected the food supply. You know, it's it's interesting that you mention ergot because that's the same fungus that many modern historians have associated with causing the great fear. It was the beginning of the French Revolution, and there were a lot of food shortages, and the tensions between the the monarchy and the royalty and the peasants was was starting to heighten. And many of the peasants became sort of delirious, and to the point of actually believing that the nobles were purposely trying to starve them. And it's interesting that you mention that because this is an example of what you might call mass hysteria. So, how does mass hysteria tie into fear? So there's this proposed theory uh, for what causes mass hysteria, like the dancing plague or the great fear, uh, and it's called psychogenic illness. Psychogenic illness. So basically, psychogenic illness is this rapid spread of symptoms amongst a cohesive group of people, often caused by extreme excitement or extreme stress, and it has no real organic cause. So it's possible that the people of Strasbourg were so stressed or excited that they developed these delusions of a dancing plague? Right, and that's the exact theory presented by historian John Waller, who uh, is sort of an expert on this dancing plague. So you have to think about it in this historical context. In 1518, the bubonic plague was still affecting some areas of Europe. The people of France were suffering from famines caused by harsh winters and dry summers. These people had plenty to be stressed about. So it's not impossible to imagine that a few of them were just pushed over the edge. Well, that's certainly reasonable. But why dancing? I mean, I feel like most examples of mass psychogenic illness just involve convulsions, stomach aches, headaches, stuff like that. And that's a good question. So Strasbourg, France was part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. And in that particular region of the Holy Roman Empire, it was common to celebrate a saint named St. Vitus by dancing. And St. Vitus, rather appropriately, is the patron saint of dancing. People who fell victim to random convulsions or dancing mania, as they called it, uh, were often said to be afflicted with so-called St. Vitus's dance, a curse placed by St. Vitus himself. Okay. So... It's easy to see how the people of Strasbourg would have known about St. Vitus, would have thought that they were being cursed after years of plague and famine. And it would just take one little seed, in this case, in the mind of Frau Trophia, to convince you that you have this dancing plague. Then fear takes over, and before you know it, the whole town is convinced they're afflicted. That's right, and that's really the danger of mass hysteria. It's difficult to pinpoint the cause, and once it takes hold... It spreads like wildfire. It really makes you think about the potential of utilizing mass hysteria as a form of psychological warfare. It's certainly a frightening possibility. Uh, right after the 9-11 anthrax attacks, within a two-week time span, there were over 2,300 false anthrax alarms in the United States. People were consistently frightened of just the, 
small possibility of similar terrorist attacks. And just earlier this month, um, at LAX, there was a false alarm of a bomb threat. And if you watch the videos, people are running, hectically running for their lives through the airport despite no existence at all of an actual danger. Based on that, this possibility really allows the enemy to attack without really having to do anything. And it's really sort of the tactic of the supervillain, if you think about it. So, in the video game Batman Arkham Asylum, the villain Scarecrow uses a hallucinogenic drug that causes Batman to have nightmarish delusions. And by doing that, he is sometimes able to defeat Batman, not with power or strength, but with fear. And at one point, while Batman is hallucinating his worst nightmares, Scarecrow asks... Is your mind playing tricks on you, or am I? Is your your mind mind playing tricks on you, or am I? The music from this segment is provided by Kevin McLeod. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Eli Cantrell. And I'm Hayden Sims. The fear show that Hayden and Eli produced that piece for was the start of a trend for this semester. We spent the entire month of October focusing on themes that fit with the spirit of Halloween, and one of those shows focused on the idea of taboos. Our producer, Emily Miles, did a piece on the concept of personal taboos, the sort of constrictions that we put on ourselves. Emily's done a number of pieces both before and since this one, but when we were deciding what stories to include in the best of show, this was the one that came to mind from her. That's from a vine of a distraught child, and he's talking to the person recording him. But just as easily, he could be the voice in each of our heads. Cultural taboos aside, we also abide by personal taboos. Um, And it puts me in a lot of uncomfortable situations, because it comes up in a lot of casual conversations, and it makes me so uncomfortable, like beyond not liking a topic of a conversation. Like I generally generate ill feelings towards the person when they talk about it. That ineffable it is hard drugs. I guess at least in my circles, we don't talk about the way drugs like ruins lives. It's such a fun pastime for the people that surround me. And I'm surrounded by amazing people, smart, kind, honest people. So I think we can understand issues, but applying them to our own lives is difficult. And so I think people understand that people get addicted to drugs. But it's so easy to be like, well, it's not going to happen to me. But for her, it's bigger. It's not a joke. It's the thing that's irreparably damaged her family. This is something I don't talk about with a lot of people. Um, when I was younger, my older sister, she would, she would pick me up from places and like shoot up in front of me. And would like take me to drug dealers' houses or like make me wait in a car in the dark alone. <sighs> not that she doesn't love me, it just it takes over who you are. So I have these just like vivid memories of spending like at least an hour at a time in those kinds of situations and being in a car with someone who's literally doing cocaine. It's just not cute to me and it's just not funny. It's not one of those things like, oh, we're young, we're millennials, like we can't change a light bulb. It's a matter of life and death. Three of my siblings um, have each had serious, serious problems with drug addiction and it makes me so cautious and honestly way more judgmental than I want to be because like I've seen the impact it has on a family. I've in one case I actually lost my brother 
because of reasons related to drugs. She's not the only one whose siblings play a role in a personal taboo. So the thing I don't talk about is my sister. And she left home when I was about nine because she's eight and a half years older than me. And when I was nine, she went off to boarding school. And right after that, she went off to college. And she went to Princeton. I live in the Midwest, so she was very far away. Immediately after graduation, she moved to Europe, back to our, where she was born in England. And then after that, she moved to Barcelona. So she's been having all of these great adventures across the world, which are really exciting. But I see her very infrequently in that time, and we have very, very little contact. Um, in part because she very, very rarely reaches out to my family to talk to us or to be updated on what's going on. I don't talk about her because I don't feel as if she wants to be a part of my life. And I feel as if if she's trying to deliberately exclude herself from my life, that I shouldn't include her within my own. And she's not the only one whose personal taboo revolves around a person who isn't around much. Uh, my roommate tends never be around. But because we're guys, and because, maybe it's not even because we're guys, maybe it's just some false sense of we've set up a friendship in a way that it sh doesn't have to be that way. That I don't tell him that he's not around enough. And I think that, you know, he, you know, he deserves to have his like own life, but... I'm pretty lonely at home all the time. Uh, and usually I think about it, and I play through the whole conversation in my head, and then when I actually get up to speak with him, he comes home, and I'm like, oh, he's already home, so there's no reason to like bring it up, because now we're having a good time. And then sometimes it'll come up, but it's usually like a one-word, one-line. He's like, oh, yeah, I know, I'll be around more, but not really. He doesn't ever turn up. For him, the taboo is a matter of insecurity and conflict avoidance. And so we're just, we're, we're best friends. So it, it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you, that I should bring up with him. Because it's, you know, that kind of friendship. I think um, one of it's like an insecurity that if I bring it up too much, that he's already chosen other people as a priority over me. And that if I bring it up, then he'll completely cut off contact. Uh, and the other is kind of wanting to avoid conflict, but kind of for the same reason. For others, the silence involves sparing family and friends from a perceived burden. Both burden and conflict. In two different ways. I don't want to create a conflict with her by telling her that I feel as if she's not a part of my life. I don't want to create a burden for my family because my parents already struggle with her being gone and I don't want to create a burden on my friends who don't fully understand the situation. And for many, it's a mixture of insecurity, conflict, and burden. For sure, that, that all matches up. And specifically with insecurity, that's like two parts to that in the situation. Like on the one hand, there's this huge insecurity about not fitting in and not doing what everyone else is doing, which is more shallow, I would say. Normal, obviously but shallow and then the other part of me like I have this vision like if I were to try one of these coke or heroin for instance if I were to try it once like it wouldn't just be once thanks to Lobo Loco for the music in this piece for American Student Radio in Bloomington I'm Emily Miles following the fear and taboo shows producer Carter Barrett had a show on the seven deadly sins 
That was one of our more challenging shows of the semester. If one of the stories didn't come through, the concept just wouldn't have worked. But luckily, it all worked out, and our producer Maggie Tully did a fantastic piece for the sin Greed that looked at the Dakota Access Pipeline, one of the major issues in the news over the past few months. She did a fantastic job looking at the controversy around the pipeline and how students were getting involved. Here's what she found. hearing is the group crossing over the Missouri River, which is the longest river in North America, stretching 2,341 miles. The group traveled together for a total of 40 hours, traveling from Bloomington to North Dakota and back. Oh, I didn't know we'd be in mountain time zone. So that's better, because the, we'll be there earlier than we thought. My name is Dylan Williams, and I'm a freshman, and I'm majoring in English, the focus in creative writing, while minoring in philosophy. My name is Natalia Kuzbiel. I am also a freshman, and I am majoring in human biology and sociology. My name is Maggie Gates. I'm a freshman, and I'm majoring in environmental and sustainability studies. My name is Ariane Kelly, and I am also a freshman. I am majoring in journalism and minoring in studio art and design. My name is Rachel Dela. I'm also a freshman, and I'm an exploratory major. I got annoyed with a lot of you guys, but it's okay. <laughs> the idea of this trip came to freshman Natalia Kuzbiel just two weeks before at the Hoosier Climate March. There was a speaker at the end of the march. His name was Chief Michael Vargas, and he's a Native American chief, and he spoke of how environmental injustice, it correlates directly with social injustice. So after hearing about the pipeline on social media, we decided that fall break is our only chance. Within two weeks of tabling and gathering donations, the group got funding from Collins Living Learning Center and were able to make the trip a reality. We constantly had in our minds that this is what we want to do, this is the right thing to do, and we're going to do it. When we got there, everybody was very welcoming, so it made the drive completely worth it. As we entered, there was a road that led us into the campground, and it was completely surrounded with flags of different tribes from all over the states. The unity of the tribes was, you could just feel it. There's over 200 tribes represented at these camps right now. Once the group got there, they dropped off their donations and set up camp. Uh, one of our neighbors, was, two of them to the left of us were French people that came to make a documentary and on the other side of us was a guy from California also documenting his stay. We didn't feel like foreigners just because we were from Indiana because everybody seemed to be from everywhere. We were welcomed and within four hours I learned way more than I had learned by researching things on the internet. Friday night the group walked around the campsite interviewing people and documenting their stay. It was sort of a solemn feel. The atmosphere just seemed kind of sad. We knew we were there for a purpose, but the fact that this pipeline is being built heartlessly, these people truly felt the pain of having to still fight for their land, still fight for their culture. It was also so cold. I fell asleep outside right next to the fire with flames almost licking my face because I was just so cold. So they're gonna live through really cold, harsh conditions through December, January. It was freezing for us already. We cannot imagine. Yeah, and, not even gonna and there's children there. The camp is currently planning and taking in donations for winter because many of these people are planning to stay here until March, which is when the pipeline's permit ends. During their stay, the group got to experience a powwow for the first time. We got to witness their 
prayer through dance and through song and it was very beautiful it kind of gave me a new appreciation to their dress knowing that it is often appropriated by non-native people it was very beautiful to see the real thing finally buzz of noise and energy mm, and fire yeah. crackling and it just always it was it was like it was kind of overwhelming to the senses but it was also just like very kind of entranced experiencing it with everyone at the same time I don't know I just had never seen anything really like that before we were sitting around the fire Saturday night just having a good time and it was just so hard to leave everybody who didn't want to go a lady they met named Vanessa a Navajo native gave the group a little branch of sacred pine before they left the campsite half of it we burned at the campground before we left and the other half we burned here when we got home the half there to leave a part of us at the campground and here so that we wouldn't feel too much sorrow in our hearts for leaving for the day and a half that we were there it certainly felt like we were making a legitimate change in this world and every single person that we left behind they're still making an impact on the community over there and just love each other as human beings. And then you come back here and no one knows a thing about what's actually going on. I sat down with Heather Williams, a Puyallup native and department secretary of the First Nations Cultural Center here at IU, to further discuss this issue and its significance. Well, I think the Dakota Access Pipeline is, is, a, is a contemporary issue that's relevant to not just me, not just Native people, but to everyone because it's a water issue and everybody needs water. One important thing to know is that the people staying at these camps who are opposed to the pipeline being built are called water protectors because they are peacefully trying to protect the water and the land. Nobody is forced to do anything they don't want to, but there have been volunteers to trespass on the construction land, knowing that of the possibility that they may get arrested. But their direct actions are very peaceful. They just they just want to go out and pray for their land. Their motto is, we're protectors, we're mindful, and we're prayerful. So their, their main goal is they're trying to accomplish this through prayer and goodwill. The group also talked about the media's role in covering the Dakota pipeline. Yeah, it yeah is. so yeah. peaceful. And people are they're just walking and they're just being together and singing. And the media has framed it in such a negative right. light. When you enter the camp, there's a big sign that says, we are unarmed. That's something that they, are, they really yeah. want people to know and that the media is not covering. For example, of how peaceful they are, they don't even want you wearing face masks for tear gas and pepper spray because they don't want you to approach their direct actions, their prayer ceremonies, with the expectation that we will be attacked. They, Their main goal is to pray and protect their water, and what happens, happens. They do not want to give off the impression that they're ready for a riot because it's not a riot. They want to keep that story very local and not spread because I think if there was a critical mass of people who felt that their water protectors were in the right, then, then the media would have no choice but to back them. So I think as long as everyone is either oblivious or thinks that the native protectors are violent and belligerent, then they can go on, they can keep ignoring it. To hear more about this issue, the First Nations Cultural Center will be hosting a discussion on Tuesday, October 25th at 6 p.m. So we're going to have three, three panelists here with all different areas of discipline that will be able to discuss the protectors, fight against the pipeline, and things like water rights, indigenous water rights, what nonviolent direct action 
looks like and means. There's going to be a lot of different faucets of the conversation going on that night, and we're trying to educate people beyond the water is good, oil is bad rhetoric. We want to give details and have an in-depth conversation on what this major current issue in Native country is all about. For more information on how you can donate and stay updated, visit sacredstone.org. There are links to legal support and camp support. You can also visit Sacred Stone Camp or Red Warrior Camp on Facebook. Here at the First Nation Center, we're always collecting donations and always have the door open for people to bring things in, and we get it up to Standing Rock one way or another. We learn to respect their culture and we learn to appreciate it because they have so much to offer. They're very humble and they don't feel violence or anger to the pipeline workers. They're just peaceful and they just want to protect what they have left. But I think that it's experiences like this that will help people understand where they're coming from and understand what we can do to help them out. Anybody can be an activist. It is important to stand up for what you care for. If you're passionate about something, pursue it. And if you believe in something, stand up for it because we didn't think that, we thought it was ridiculous for in two weeks to get up and go across the states to stand up against the Dakota Access Pipeline, but we did it. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Maggie Tully. Now we're going to take a quick break for our mid-credits, but we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Student Radio. This is our last episode of the semester, but we'll be returning to WIUX 99.1 FM on January 22nd with some exciting changes. In this episode, we're revisiting some of our favorite pieces from the semester. So we asked our producers about the best moments of their semesters. The best thing that happened to me this semester was that my house got defleeced. We had fleas, but then we got rid of the fleas. Getting accepted with my study abroad program and being able to go to Jordan next semester and then um, having NPR's first full-time TV critic, um, Eric Deggins, uh, respond to my email and uh, talk to me for our show. Definitely made a lot of new friends this semester and I've pushed myself to go into areas of journalism and reporting that I never have before. Considering it's my last semester of college, it's good to know that I'm still learning. Um, the best thing that happened, probably joining American Student Radio. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice, on Instagram at American Student Radio, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash American Student Radio. Also, check out previous shows on SoundCloud and iTunes. Now back to the show. Again, you're listening to American Student Radio here on WIUX. I'm Taylor Haggerty, and we're doing our special end of the semester best of show, where we include our favorite pieces from the, throughout the semester in one final episode before break, and in my case, graduation. This semester, there was one particular highlight that we couldn't include in this show our full interview with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Producer Sophia Salaby interviewed him for an entire episode. For obvious reasons, we couldn't play the whole thing, but you can listen to it on our SoundCloud, and it's one of my favorite episodes, so I would highly recommend it. Um, 
We're going to shift back to our scheduled pieces now, starting with one from our producer, Angelo Batista, about the folklore of the Philippines. This piece was for our Halloween episode, where we explore, explored folklore, legends, and murder ballads, and Angelo's piece was appropriately spooky. It touches on some disturbing topics, though, so listen with caution. My family loves to go camping every fall in Brown County. It's usually us and three or four other families, all Filipino. And I remember one time we went camping several years ago. It was dark and cold, and all of the kids were huddled up around the fire. And it occurred to us that we've never told ghost stories before. That's when the parents started telling us stories about creatures we had never heard of. Creatures from back home in the Philippines. Some were innocent and mischievous, like the duende, what we would call elves or goblins, or the capre, giant cigar-smoking tree trolls similar to Bigfoot. Others were pure nightmare fuel. There's the tikbalang, a tall, bony, humanoid creature with the head of a horse, the torso of a man, long sinewy legs, and blood-red eyes. Then. There's the White Lady of Balete Drive, a vengeful spirit dressed in white that haunts drivers in the misty night. Legend has it that a woman died on Balete Drive after crashing into a balete tree. Other stories say the woman was brutally raped by a taxi driver and left for dead on the side of the road. According to Filipino folklore, balete trees are known to lure spirits, which is why the White Lady's spirit still lingers in the area. She appears to drivers in the mist along the side of the road, Sometimes she appears inside the cars of drivers. Locals know well enough not to stare into the rearview mirror when driving at night, out of fear of meeting the gaze of the white lady. And then there's the Aswang. The name alone just gives me chills. I met up with my friends from the Filipino American Association for their Halloween-themed meeting to learn more about the Aswang. Here's my friend, Francis Sebastian. The Aswang are by far the most prolific monsters in Filipino folklore. In fact, the term Aswang itself refers to various types of creatures that belong to this group. According to Spanish colonizers in the 16th century, the Aswang are the most feared monsters amongst the mythological creatures of the Philippines. Originally, Aswang are female ghouls, mostly described as vampire-like creatures that can change shape at will. It is difficult to accurately describe what an Aswang looks like because the description varies from region to region. A few similarities do state that these shapeshifters normally live as regular female townspeople, though shy, quiet, and mysterious. At night, Aswang take the forms of pigs, birds, or dogs and feast upon human body parts, namely the liver and the heart. The Aswang is said to have bloodshot eyes, an indication of their staying up all night in search of their windows. Aswang are an entire class of monster. They come in many different terrifying forms, but they all have one thing in common. They love the taste of humans. They prey on the vulnerable, the children, and the elderly. And some have an appetite for unborn fetuses. The most well-known type of Aswang is known as the Mananangal. Usually disguised as a female, the Mananangal sprouts huge bat-like wings and severs its torso from the rest of its body as it takes flight. Its name comes from the Tagalog word tangal, which means to separate. 
Mananangal roughly translates to one who separates itself. No one is safe from the Mananangal, especially expecting mothers. It lands silently on the thatched roofs of houses, and with its long, slender tongue, it drinks the unborn child as the mother sleeps, like a mosquito getting its fill of blood. It's easy to see how creatures like the Mananangal are used as a way to explain miscarriages and death. Much of the horror in these folktales is rooted deeply in Catholicism, which was introduced to the Philippines by the Spaniards in the 16th century. Many of these unholy creatures were thought to be the result of the death of an unbaptized child, which is a terrifying thought for Catholics. For example, the Tianak is an aswang that disguises itself as a newborn child. Born out of the death of an unbaptized baby, it seeks revenge on its mother who failed to baptize it. Over time, these origins have shifted from not just the death of the unbaptized, but also the aborted. Today, many Filipinos hold a strong belief in these creatures and legends. Personally, I don't believe in them, but I do love these stories. They were part of our culture and collective oral history passed down through generations and generations. I asked some of the members of the Filipino American Association to share some of their scariest stories that were told in their families. Here's one from sophomore Kristen Kunanan. Uh, well, my cousin, she works as a nurse in the Philippines, and when she first started working, she worked in um, a ward in a hospital, which is just pretty much a lot of hospital beds and patients just like have privacy if they want curtains around their bed. And my cousin said that she was checking a patient one day, and this patient always has their curtains closed. So she went into the curtains, and she was just checking the patient, and the patient said, have you seen the batang aswang? And then my cousin said, I don't know what you're talking about. So the patient went on and was describing a child that had red eyes and would run around the ward and would stop in front of the bed of the patient that was going to die next. So my cousin, she just thought, oh, this lady's crazy. So she was just like, oh, that's funny. Like, oh, you're just telling me a scary story. Let me open up your curtains so you can have a new view. And then the patient started freaking out, was like, no, I'm gonna see the Batanga Swang if you do that. So my cousin left the patient. She went up to her other nurse friends and was telling them what just happened, was telling them the story of the Batanga Swang. And then the other nurses were saying, oh, that's funny. My patients told me the same story. So at that point, my cousin was starting to freak out, but she didn't really think anything of it. And then so the next day, she went to check another patient. This patient always kept their curtains open, but was sleeping at the time when my cousin was going to see them. When she got up to the bed, the patient opened her eyes, was just staring up at the ceiling, and said, huh, batang swung," and then died the next day. <laughs> The music in this piece was created by Mexup and Silver Process with a Creative Commons license. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Angelo Bautista.
This next piece was for our show on magic. Our producers Catherine De La Rosa and Abby Gibson did some DIY spell casting, and the result was so funny and entertaining that it's become my absolute favorite piece from the entire semester. I think it pretty much speaks for itself, so I'm not going to say any more about it. Here's Catherine's first venture into the world of magic. No one in American student radio had ever practiced magic until Saturday before the election, when I used producer Abby Gibson's kitchen to cast an employment spell. How did you find this spell again? I I googled free spells. It wasn't my first choice. My dearest wish was to brew the Athame Revenge Elixir from the same website, mainly because it had elixir in the name and it made me think of... I don't expect many of you to appreciate the subtle science and exact art that is potion making. I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. But that didn't work out for a couple of reasons. Like the most fun is a revenge one, but I don't have anyone I want to have vengeance on. And also, you have to like name them. And I think that naming someone you want revenge on on the radio was like a bad thing to do. I don't want any negative spells conducted in my household. I'm, I'm trying to bring positivity. Okay. It also required that I purchase a witch blade that I saw in the price range of $70 and up. I would have used my Swiss knife anyway because I'm on a budget. The budget of unemployment. So why are you casting this spell today? Because I have no fear of magic. And, um, or God, if God's real. I feel like as a confirmed Catholic, this is definitely like grounds for excommunication. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. All practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone or when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. But I don't care what the church says. And a weird part of me does believe in this. Like, I feel like I sound condescending, but like, I want it to happen. I want to be employed. Like, do you kind of believe it's going to work? Like, in your like hindbrain? No, I don't kind of believe it will, but if it, if, if it does, if I do get a job as the thing I specify once I do this film. I won't say that it was not, I won't say it was coincidence. <laughs> the instructions called for a thick green candle. I, ha- I have a thick, thick green candle. It smells like a Christmas tree. Incense related to employment like bergamot or bay leaf. You can light some sticks on fire. And oil related to employment such as bergamot, rosemary, or bay leaf. Can we use canola oil? Yeah. Okay, complete your spell by saying this spell three times, all except the last line, which should not be, which should be said once at the end of your spell casting. So it's like the Agnes Day in church. Okay, and it's it's real long. It's like five lines long. There's a blank for me to put stable job as a whatever I want to be. And they say any questions regarding this spell are welcomed. It was this is an article contributed by someone named Tanya. She says blessed be. Thanks, Tanya. The first thing I did was carve her name onto the candle. Okay, which candle do you think we should use? We have one that's slightly larger, but they're both thick. I don't like the idea of it being glittery. I feel like oh. that might contaminate the magic. May the peace and joy of the holidays be with you. From Yankee Candle, or the other one is called um, Aunt Sadie's Tree in a Can. 
Wait, what does it say? Carve your name on the candles. Just anywhere. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so if we have a bobby pin, which I'm pulling out from my hair right now. Whoa. Just go right to town. Okay. I'm writing my name, which is... How many letters are in my name? A bunch. It's going to take a while. Hold on. just your initials? Oh, I can do that. Let's do that. The first instruction was actually to consecrate the candle and charge it with your intentions by visualizing your need for a job. All right. So I need to pause. Yes. Look at the candle. Yeah. Think really hard. It's not really like imagination because I do need a job. Like I'm... There's no visualizing going on. It's just me and my current lived experience needing a job. So I feel like the candle and I know this. <laughs> okay. So now that the candle and you both know this, um, what's the next step? Um, I think we went backwards. You're spo- <laughs> now I'm supposed to carve my name, but, you know. We just did some preparation. It's okay. The next step was to carve your name, but then it was to anoint the candle with the oil of my choice, which was... 100% pure canola oil. Market pantry. This is that's the Target store brand, right? Um, but I don't want to put it on the candle because I think like that could be bad. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna put it right next to the candle in its okay. bottle. Okay. As someone who's experienced several sacraments in the Catholic Church, anointment with oil usually happens with like your thumb and they draw a cross on you. But I feel like because this is, you know, magic, we shouldn't bring that <laughs> into this. So I don't know what they mean by anointment, but it's it's near the candle, which is all that matters. Then it was time to light the candle and incense. We do not have incense, but we have this thing of tea. What, what kind of tea is this? Um, hold on. Miriam, what kind of tea is this? Black tea? Um, but it has bergamot in it? The casting instructions next told me to focus on the flame of the candle, visualizing myself already in possession of the job I wanted. I have some matches here, so have you ever... Are you a match professional or do you want me to light it? I've always wanted to light a match, because in church we always use lighters, and it wasn't magical. So, uh, you just you just do it, yeah, right? Um, I can have a good grip on it. Good grip. Yeah, you, you can figure it out. Okay. You have to give more force. Yeah, oh, holy damn. Oh, we can't have that in this thing. Hello? Hello? Oh, sh- oh it's burning my head. <laughs> I have the spirit of fire, actually, I'll confess, because um, I went to a, my maternal grandmother's funeral, and it was a Filipino funeral. Everyone, even me, the youngest three-year-old, had a candle, and I burned, I stuck my entire hand on it, and now I'm afraid of fire, and that's why I'm bad at cooking. Okay, so I'm completing the spell by saying this spell three times, all except the last line, which should be said once at the end of your spell casting. So, here we go. I call upon the universe to help me find a stable job as a nonprofit theater company literary manager. <laughs> I need it to pay well enough to pay my bills and other living expense, with maybe a little left over for fun. <laughs> Let me work in harmony and be treated fairly with all other employed others employed there. May they accept me as I am and may I accept them as they are. I humbly ask for this to come to fruition as soon as possible. That's the end of the thing and then I repeat it twice. So I call upon the universe to help me find may I accept them as they are. I humbly ask for this to come to, to fruition as soon as possible. So mote it be. And that's the end. So do you feel different? Do I feel different? I kind of burn my finger a bit, but like not visibly. <laughs> so 
I don't know, you're talking about a lot about your religion, so is it, do you feel like the magic that you've experienced just right now is kind of similar to what you've experienced in church? It's similar in that there's smoke in your eyes, and if you open your mouth on your tongue and you're reciting something, that's very repetitive. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Catherine Delarosa. Our last piece comes from our final show this semester, all about the root of things. ASR producer Abby Gibson did a really lovely piece on food and culture by looking into the history of some recipes she learned from her mom, who learned them from her mom, and so on. The story is really touching, and I wanted to make sure we played it on the show. I remember one Sunday when I was in high school, my mom got this idea to make cookies. Hundreds of them, like her grandmother used to make. Our kitchen was tiny and we kept bumping into each other as she worked on the filling and I rolled out the dough, both of us covered in flour and powdered sugar. I remember, after a day's worth of work, my mom moving a huge tin of the cookies to the freezer and watching them spill all over the kitchen floor. But, tragic ending aside, while we were baking, my mom told me about cooking with her mother, grandmother, and sisters. They would always make these cookies around the holidays, cream cheese dough wrapped around an apricot, walnut, or poppy seed filling. We called them kiffles or kolachi, the Hungarian and Czech terms for what I think is the same cookie, but my mom disagrees. Anyway, these were kind of our thing. And honestly, they're not that good. I don't consider anything without chocolate to be truly dessert. So when I went home, I asked my family why these cookies, or any food, has survived generations. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sue. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> Would you like to dance? That's who I am. What do you want to know about me? <laughs> All right. So I guess I'll explain what I'm doing. Um, so I wanted to ask you about different recipes and stuff you grew up eating or cooking. Um, well, I don't remember, but I do remember coming home from school and my mom would have cookies being, um, rolling them out. She had special recipes and it made us feel special. What other stuff did your grandmother, Barney, make? Oh my gosh. Kolache. She made these holiday poppy seed balls. Well, wait, well, wait, uh, first introduce yourself. I'm your mother. <laughs> I'm Kathy. <laughs> you don't know her. <laughs> I don't know. When you were making food in your adult life, um, <clears throat> I guess, like, how did you decide what to make? Because, like, not everything that you make is going to reflect what you grow up, grew right. up eating necessarily. No, it, it reflects what you can afford how healthy you want to be and when you were younger there's ingredients that you use that you would never dare use like lard hello who would do that today grandma barney probably used lard that's interesting just how education will change the way we eat i think habit though i think habit probably supersedes education in food in comfort things i think habit probably plays a, a much bigger role but now that we're aware of our habits and we're changing that we're aware of, then we probably will change. But I think food's one of the last things that people cha don't change. That's interesting. And why would that be? Because I think it's all about comfort and what you're familiar with. I think tastes are very, very specific. Why do you think food in particular is so tied to culture and heritage and... I think it's one of the easiest things to impart on who you are 
it's easy to pass on a recipe. It's easy to recreate a recipe, a food recipe. Some of the other ways, maybe not so much. I don't know, stories. I guess stories would, maybe other families use stories. But we certainly, I think the only way we pass down a lot of things were from food. Tradition. I mean, it's just, I still think it's a lot to do with comfort. It's who we are. I guess food is who we are. Let's think about that. Let's think about that. (laughs) If you think of a cookie that's good, or you have shared memories or easy to share, what else is as easy to share as food? And, And when you put the diverse family together and you ask friends and family over, what else could you share that easily? So when I got back to Bloomington, I figured I'd make these cookies for myself, continue this ritual on my own. The results were kind of ad hoc. I forgot to buy eggs. Shout out to my friend Casey for bringing me a single egg. I didn't have the proper apricot fillings, so I used discount jam, and the dough looked like it was cut out by a monkey. But I brought them to an ASR meeting and made the staff eat them anyway. Um, so Sophia uh, is going for a cookie. So what do you look at when you see this cookie? So it's like nice and folded. It's brown on the edges, a little bit brown on the bottom. It seems to have nuts on the inside. It's like it's like really nicely folded. It's a nice presentation. If I were on Chopped, I would give you full points for presentation. Oh. It's good. Okay, everyone can have a cookie. Please take them. They're okay, is what I will say. Um, They're good. I like them. They're basically like baklava but like a cookie what is this um it's called the collage collage i made something like these one time but obviously it wasn't these because i made them (laughs) um Um, how do you feel now that i've shared my do you feel like i've shared my heritage with you i do i feel like i'm in i don't feel like i'm in the czech republic i feel like i'm in the united states with my friend who has czech heritage and that's exactly the point that you're making right I thought there's something to be said about sharing food with people and sharing food with friends. Like when you brought this, I think we all, all of our eyes lit up. And I think that's happened in the past when people brought food to meetings is that it kind of makes you love the person that's bringing you the food because it's free food. In fact, I will have another one. (laughs) The music for this piece was created by Poddington Bear under a Creative Commons license. For American Student Radio, I'm Abby Gibson. So that's it for the show today, and for American Student Radio this semester. Our producers did an amazing job with their pieces, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to showcase them. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Haggerty, and this has been American Student Radio. Be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode in January. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. 
We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org.